Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This is episode 243, and it's called You and Me and Ruth. And seriously, my heart is so full. See, there's this uh, little window of time each year in the end of April to mid-May when... um, my daughter's birthday, my then it's my younger son's birthday, then two days later is Kristen's birthday, then there's Mother's Day in there, then uh, Kristen and I, both of our fathers have a birthday in there, and then my older son Trace had his birthday yesterday, he turned 21, and then this episode of the Robcast comes out on a Monday, and the Tuesday, the next day after this episode comes out, Kristen and I are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. Are you with me on this? Two, five, and we're having more fun than ever. So there's like this, I don't know, three-week period each year when uh, the people I love the most, we party and, oh my word. So if I sound a little loopy or if I just sound a little floaty, it's because uh, we're right in that window of time. And um, what else? Oh, um, tour. I'm headed in a couple of weeks to Louisville, Chattanooga, and Knoxville. Come on. I have this first part of this year, I've been going to cities that I pretty much didn't go to last year. And I, by the way, I love going to cities where people say, wait, why did you come here? That is the best. Um, And then Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco, um, tickets are up for those um, tour stops. It's the Introduction to Joy tour. And then uh, the UK leg is in August, which is London, Bristol, may I remind you, which is where Banksy is from, Manchester, and then I'm doing three nights um, in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. So hopefully I'm coming your way in the next few months. Oh, and also, um, I love talking about the art and science of communicating. And especially when somebody's stuck, they're working on something, there's something that's within them they need to say, or they're in some setting where they need to say things. Um, I absolutely love watching people get unstuck and figure out how to take whatever it is that's sort of burning within them and an idea and give it shape and form. So I've done these workshops uh, over the years called Something to Say. And there's actually like, uh, I don't know, it's seven hours and 45 minutes, this long form audio I did. It's at my site which is all about the art of communicating. Um, but I'm uh, doing some more two days, uh, two days in August and then two days in October, which are like workshops for those of you who communicate in some way. And um, I got all this new things I want to talk about, all this new content and new ways to think about how we give expression to the things that are within us. So um, we just put up tickets for that. And of course, it's always more fun when you're there. So there's a couple things that are um, coming up that uh, 
you can be a part of, but you know, right now it's episode two, four, three, and it's called You and Me and Ruth. So I want to try something here and uh, we'll see if it works, <laughs> which is kind of how I feel about everything um, that I get to do, which is we'll see, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But I want to read you the first part of an ancient story, and I want to give you a... a, We're going to read it in a particular way um, because I want to show you something that can happen in the way that you read something and and encounter it and interact with it. And and then I want to move from that to the world that we find ourselves in and is there something there that uh, is actually desperately needed? And I realize now that that's sort of like the most vague setup everywhere. Um, but hopefully in a moment here, this will all be crystal clear. So, and I know you're already like, okay, where are you going to be in the Bible? Um, there's this book called Ruth. So you have the first five books of the Bible, Torah. Then you have Joshua Judges Ruth, which is my favorite Lyle Lovett album by far, Um but Joshua Judges Ruth, Ruth is this little book. It's, and can you hear the actual pages turning of an actual paper book? It's uh, four chapters, and uh, it's this story, well, you know by now, it's got all these layers and subtlety and nuance, um, and there's this economy of words. So it opens with just a few words But notice how much narrative is packed into these few words. Chapter 1, the book of Ruth, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So, first off, there's a famine and there's a man from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in Hebrew... Bet means house, lahem means bread. So there's a man who lives in the house of bread. There's a family who lives in the house of bread who don't have any bread. And the time of Judges, in many ways, was a cycle of violence where these people um, have been conquered by one foreign oppressor after another. So they would be conquered and oppressed. Then, from within their ranks, somebody would rise up and deliver them and drive off the evil oppressor and give them a moment of peace until the next neighbor came in and conquered and crushed them. And then there'd be misery and suffering until they cried out, and then another would rise. So there's like this cycle of crying out because you're in misery. Then you get a little relief and things are good, but you make a mess of things. It's like you relax and just sort of float, and then you make a mess of things, and then you end up enslaved all over again and need to cry, which kind of sounds like being a human, (laughs) come to think of it. By the way, do you see how these ancient stories, they work at like a national political level, but they also work at a personal level. And so there's this family living in the house of bread. There's a famine, and they don't have any bread. 
And so they go to live for a while in the country of Moab. By the way, we're still in verse 1. Now, here's what's interesting. The Moabites were arch enemies of the Israelites. The Moabites were like the evil neighbors. In fact, that there's a whole strand in, in scholarship about the Moabites and how they practice child sacrifice. So like the most repugnant, evil people you could possibly sort of imagine. You can fill in your blank with whatever that word is today. So in one verse, we get uh, there's a famine. There are forces beyond these people control at work. There's not enough food, and they have to go leave home, essentially. They have to move into a form of exile, trying to find food. And where do they go? They go looking for food in Moab, their worst enemy. Have you ever uh, had one of those experiences where you were in trouble and you needed help and you had to reach out to your enemy, to that estranged relative? You had to make that call to that person. It's the last person you want to call, and yet you're so desperate you actually call them. Have you ever needed money and that sort of humiliating feeling of asking, but the only person you know who might be able to help you out is the person you've been at odds with. Anybody anybody been there? Have you ever been displaced because of forces at work way beyond your control? So, So this book of Ruth starts with a family on the move. They're displaced. Verse two, the man's name was Elimelech. By the way, that means God is my king. So you have like a whole sovereignty sort of political thing happening there. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So when they're in this foreign land, foreign language, cultures, systems, all that stuff that makes your life your life, that's been, they've been torn from that. And now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. By the way, think of how much ground we've covered in three verses. This family, because of famine, go to this, the evil empire next door. They're trying to find food, and while they're there, this woman's husband dies, and she's left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. By the way, uh, I have this friend who uh, was named after Orpah, but the name got misspelled um, right away. I think it was even on the birth certificate. And so um, from early on, they called her Oprah. So uh, by the way, do you like that little side story there? (laughs) There we go. So... um, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. The two sons died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So she's in this foreign land, in exile, essentially, miles from home, and her son dies, and then her two sons die a bit after her husband dies. Yeah, things... Uh, changed drastically. When Naomi heard in Moab 
that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. By the way, pause again. I know I keep pausing, but there's so much here because this name Lord is actually a particular naming of the divine. Because remember for these people, which, which we've circled back to again and again and again, for these people, the Exodus is the story. It's the defining story. Real people enslaved in a real place at a real time experience a liberation and a release from their captivity. And so again and again, this is the story at the center of the entire Bible. Real people in real places being liberated from what enslaves them. So you can see why this story has endured. It's about freedom. It's about flourishing. It's about the release from captivity. So the name that was given to that divine force in the world in this ancient Jewish story, that name was called Yahweh, which gets spelled in English as Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So when you read Naomi heard in Moab, so she's essentially in exile, that Yahweh, the Lord, had come to the aid of his people. You can see why that's got like uh, revolutionary tones in that sentence. Oh, yes, we know about this. We know this story. We know about the deliverance from oppression, from famine, from starvation. We know about the grace of getting help in our helplessness. We know about power in our powerlessness. By the way, uh, every one of you in recovery, you know this story because this is like the story. Like you think about the 12 steps. How does it start? It starts with your powerlessness. That's where, that's where all the amazing stuff happens, doesn't it? You come to the end of yourself. You, uh, you're enslaved in some way. And you, on your own steam, your own power, uh, you've been trying to sort of muscle your way, sweat your way out of it. And it's when you hit the wall, you crash, you're face down on the bathroom floor, and you cry out. Uh, that's, that cry inaugurates, it kicks the liberation in gear. This has been the story for a long, long time. So like Naomi's in exile, but she hears that familiar old story. Ah, when we were at our worst, we got help. And so she and her daughters-in-law, but their husbands have died, right? So these women are with Naomi, but the connection they had, the sons, the sons are gone. So she and her daughter-in-law is prepared to return home from there. But what's interesting is it's only Naomi's home. The daughter-in-laws are from Moab. So even when it says like, she prepared, they prepared to return home. It's not home for her daughters. It would be actually a foreign land for them. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to, to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. The, Naomi's essentially saying, hey, I got nothing more for you here. My sons died, so our bond. Uh, and if you go into like sort of the, the legal situation of that day, we, there's not really anything left between us. Like our bond was you were married to my sons, but you're actually from here. So you going back with me, you would be going into a, you'd be a foreigner. You'd be going back to a foreign land. You, we're good. We're done. You, you, you owe me nothing. 
Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? <laughs> even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. By the way, this is funny. Um, ancient funny, but funny. She, essentially, Naomi is like, uh, even if I got married like tonight and we had sex and I got pregnant and then I gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Are you going to wait around for my those young sons to grow up? No. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So Naomi's headed home. But for her, this trauma, this loss, her husband, her sons, it has shaped the whole way she sees everything. I, I know you know what I'm talking about. You go through loss, you go through betrayal, you go through intense criticism, you go through somebody stabs you in the back, uh, you go through the death of a loved one, somebody d- leaves you, you find out they've been unfaithful, all that. Uh, and it shapes the whole way you see everything. It's like Naomi's going, this whole thing... Uh, this whole thing is upside down. The whole thing is stacked against me. At this, they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So look, said Naomi, look, Ruth, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. You wonder if Naomi was like, seriously, pump the brakes, Ruth. This is a bit over the top. By the way, I'm sure you've heard these words. This is like classic, I think it's weddings where this often gets quoted. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, think about what the storyteller is doing here. There's the words, but then there are not the words. Why It's almost like Orpah is the practical one. She's like, why would we go with this bitter old woman back to a land we've never lived in when the connection we had with her was our husbands and our husbands are dead? It's almost like Orpah does the very practical, realistic, pragmatic thing. And it's like, okay, you know, I I wept a bit, but okay, Naomi, peace be with you. I'm going back to my mother's home where I like, I'm going home. But what's really interesting here is Ruth uh, has the opposite response. She would rather follow this woman and leave home and head into the unknown, which obviously was deeply countercultural. No, nobody would do that, especially a woman who, in, in those days, in those times, in those places, legal rights were next to nothing, and without some... Uh, marital connection to, uh, once again, a patriarchal society, so we read it for what it is, with no connection through a husband to like a larger clan, she's 
unprotected. She's vulnerable. She is at, at the risk of all sorts of exploitation. Why would you do that? Why would you do the least sensible, most dangerous thing and bind yourself on an unknown journey with this old woman who apparently is fairly cranky and bitter, to say the least? And what's interesting here is the storyteller, I'm just actually realizing this just right now reading it through, the storyteller gives you no help. It's like a giant mystery just sitting there. The storyteller is not like, by the way, Ruth did this because she was very clingy. <laughs> or You know what I mean? They're like, Ruth had a tragic thing happen to her when she was seven, and she tended to overattach herself to strong maternal figures. Right? You get nothing. All you get is, I'm going with you. You and I are bound together. I don't really care what dangers or risks lie ahead. This is the way forward. Have, have you ever had that sense? Uh, there's some sense within you that there's a journey into the unknown. And the people around you, the people closest to you, are like, why would you do that? Why would you spend that money? Why would you go there? Why would you pursue those ideas? Why would you leave this job which is the job you always wanted, which pays so well, and the healthcare is amazing, and the hours are great. Why would you leave this known for the unknown? In some ways, this is the story of everybody who's ever gone on some sort of hero's journey, is it not? All you know... And by the way, the ancient art of Midrash is when you take the story and you pause, and in the gaps and the holes... You just dance with it. You just start throwing stuff against the wall. You see what I mean? And in the ancient tradition, your love for the text and the tradition was reflected in the passion with which you threw yourself into the Midrash, into the commentary. So you'd say, why does Ruth insist on making this journey? Why does she leave home, Moab, and head to this land, which, by the way, was known for its famine? right? So this is a place that's just recovering from, there's no food there. Is that the first place you think, hey, I'll go there? And yet, at some deep level, it's like you can feel the resonance with your own story. All those times when those around you were making practical arguments for a particular course of action, yet someone within you went, something within you went, no, uh, no, I got to go this way. Or those times when you found yourself bonded with someone and you can't quite figure out why. You just know that there's something with them. There's something there with them and you need to see it through. You need to see where it takes you. There's some deep, it's like an internal magnetism, uh, some compulsion to see where it goes. But there's been a famine there, I know. But like, it's like different gods. It's like different culture. It's different custom. Maybe it's different language. It's like you won't know anybody. You'll be like the Moabite widow who used to be married to Naomi's son. <laughs> like, do you realize no one's gonna like really, like you're going to be like a foreigner. You're going to be an immigrant. You're going to be kind of a nobody. And as a woman, and yeah, 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 I know, I know. And yet, where you go, I go, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Yeah, 
Yeah, you see why this story, and we're only a couple verses in, uh, do you find yourself anywhere in here, ever been displaced because of forces beyond your control, uh, ever f- found yourself with a full life, and then all of a sudden the people around you are gone, they graduated, they leave, divorced, dead, they moved, you moved, and suddenly the people who were your people aren't there, and you're not home, but you're headed home, you're home, but you're headed somewhere else, Uh, You find yourself in exile miles from home because of decisions that you had to make just to survive. It's all here. So Ruth is determined to go with her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, Bethlehem. They came to the house of bread. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty, Mara means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. So once again, in Bethlehem, this village, there would have been all these people who grew up with Naomi. And when the famine hits, she and her husband and boys, they leave. So these people would have known this healthy, vital woman with these kids, and she leaves because they have the strength to leave and go find food, and yet this bitter woman returns, a widow, grieving mother of two sons who have died as well. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi's like really clear. This... (laughs) This is the fault of the divine, the universe. We might say, the universe is rigged against me. I know who did this. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. By the way, she keeps using that word Yahweh, that's that, that liberation word. So she's like, oh, the one who uh, liberates, the one who frees people from whatever they're enslaved to, that's the one. That's the one who's caused me all this pain and heartache. And she says here, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. That's her name, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. End of chapter one. I know, it's an ancient little four-chapter story tucked away there early in the Bible. Oh, by the way, a couple things you might enjoy here. Notice all the dudes die. So it's a story about women. Yeah, it's a story about women. And uh, actually chapter two, the women, all the action is driven by the women. So it's an ancient story thousands of years ago about women And the women are the center of the drama. And the women control and drive the narrative. By the way, I'll I'll be honest. We probably should do chapter two next episode. Are you with me on this? I'm even sucked in. I'm like, wait, we probably need to do chapter two. So if you're thinking, where does this story go? Next episode, we'll explore that. Nevertheless, for right now, notice that uh, this is a story about women. This is a story about women traveling in dangerous days. This is about women going into the unknown. This is about the love and fidelity between women. 
This is about loss. This is about a mother and loss. This is about a woman losing her lover and partner. This is about a daughter losing her lover and partner. This is about all those moments, like you picture them on the road and Orpah's like, well, I'm out of here. And Ruth's like, no, I'm staying with you. And what's so fascinating is you read this. Oh, by the way, second thing, you know the sons, what were their names again? Malon and Kilion. You know what those names mean in Hebrew? Uh, the names, uh, the one name means sick and the other name means ailing. So even the sons who die quite, the sons basically come on the scene long enough to die. The way the storyteller talks about the sons is they were married to her two sons, sick and ailing. So you can even see there, the storyteller is tilting things. This is a story about women because the men are essentially impotent here. It's a story about women. Women drive the narrative. They're the engine. And by the way, when you get to chapter two, you're like, whoa, they really drive the narrative. So... Uh, the reason why I took you through this is at any point, and how many minutes have I been going here? 29 minutes. Was there any point in that story that you were like, oh, I know that? Was there, was there anything at any point in that story of displacement, hope, being torn? You assume on the road, uh, Orpah's fairly torn, and then she just makes a decision. Have you ever found yourself, of course you have, like, which way do I go here? What's the right thing to do? There's an extraordinary amount of very practical wisdom that would say, go back to your mother, go back to your familiar land. And yet Ruth goes the exact opposite direction. Nobody thinks this is a good idea. Have you ever been through anything like that, where something within you, like a honing beacon, says, go that way. And even the people closest to you around you are like, don't go that way. And yet you do. There's some, some intuition, some spirit driving you. And almost like some pre-rational, some before the intellect sort of way. Yeah. Verifying yourself at the mercy of forces larger than yourself. Yeah. Do you see what we did there? Do you see what we just did for however many minutes, for 29 minutes? We read this ancient story and we found ourselves somewhere in it. Look what we did there. We're just reading this ancient narrative about these particulars, Moab, uh, Amalek, Elimelech, Orpah, even the names are odd. Um, the politics, the gods, the languages. It's all deeply foreign. It's so removed from 2019. And yet, just a couple minutes in, once we like uh, sort of broke through, we're like, oh yeah, I know that feeling. Oh yeah, I know that feeling. Oh yeah, I've lost some people along the way. Oh yeah, I found myself miles from home. Oh yeah, I've had some stirring to head in a direction that's unknown when all rational evidence says, whatever you do, don't do that. So in some strange way, what we did, it's like we blurred the lines. It's that story, them, then. And yet within moments, 
uh, it's even like if you put your hand to your heart, can you find yourself anywhere in there? Can you find any Ruth within yourself? Can you find any Naomi within yourself? Anybody ever just wanted to change your name to something else because you're so bitter? Anybody uh, ever found yourself convinced the system and the game were rigged against you? Uh, ever had that sense that there must be, if anybody's running the show, they clearly have something against me. <laughs> yes, of course, of course, of course. It's an ancient text, and yet we just dipped our toe in. We were just a couple verses in, and we were finding ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And then you add it to the, add to it this historic layer that people have been have been reading this story and finding themselves in it for thousands and thousands of years. So when you and I listen to it and, and we like we tune our ear to its aches and pains and losses and tensions, when we point out like, oh, we don't really get any explanation about why, why Ruth is like that. Oh, that's interesting. Apparently the storyteller has no need to tell us why this woman would do this. Apparently, it's not important to the storyteller, which, of course, raises all these questions. Where is this story headed that the storyteller has no need to give us any background on why Ruth? Because other places, other stories around this story where the storyteller will say, she did this because of X. He did this because of Y. So when you and I read this, we're actually joining who knows, countless tens of thousands of millions of people who have gathered around this story and found it doing something to them. Look what we did there. It's almost like a musculature. It's almost like building up a muscle within yourself where you're reading a story and you're getting better and better at finding yourself in it. It's like you're looking far enough into them, into her and her and him, that you see yourself. Because it's easy, think about it developmentally, like think about a young kid who only, like a, a child, a toddler, who the sum total of the world is pretty much them. They are unable to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. They can only really see the world through themselves. And then what happens, what we would call like proper moral, spiritual, human, personal development, is you begin to realize, hey, there are other people in the universe. And you develop this ability to like feel what maybe somebody else is feeling, or you can put yourself in their shoes, or you hear them talking and you say, oh, me too. Yeah, we, we call that like maturity, like growing up. So when you're reading a text like this, uh, it's like you're building these muscles to get better and better at finding yourself in it. Yeah, yeah, that's what's happening there. It's a mark of maturity when you see it in a child or as a human being. So in some ways, the invitation for all of us is to get better and better and better at that. And here's why. Well, there's lots of reasons why I find this absolutely fascinating and helpful and convicting and like a pulse to follow. Uh, here's one. It's the particulars that lead us into the universals. So it's the particulars of the Ruth story. 
It's like we need the particulars in order to get our way to the universals. If I had just said to you, hey, I just want to talk about, hey, you know, sometimes there are forces beyond yourself and you sort of find yourself in a foreign situation and, you know, sometimes you find yourself, it's almost like that. If I had just sort of, the, uh, it's that thing on Instagram when the motivational speaker person just keeps posting, like, go get your dreams today, be everything that you know you're here to be, you be you, that's all lovely. But have you ever had the sense of like, it's just at some point a fire hose of platitudes? Have you ever felt that way when someone's like, live your life, dream your dreams, go for it, just be you, that's what we need? Like, at some point, what you're actually feeling there, when it just, at some point, just feels like a bookshelf full of cliches crashing down on top of you. Have you ever had that sense? When it's like the person is just a bunch of quotes, <laughs> and it doesn't have any, it's what you need as a particular. You need somebody to say, this is what happened to me, and then this is what happened to me. And then, when I was face down in the muck, I got back up, and it was a Tuesday at 3.42, and I was wearing a green sweater, and you're like, yes! Like, you need the particulars. We need to see it embodied, incarnated in flesh, and blood. That's how you and I get the hope. We get the juice. We get the inspiration. We get the thing is somebody takes us into their particulars and they tell us their story. We see what happened to them and how they responded. And that's how you and I get to the love, hope, peace, inspiration, resilience. They told me their story and it told me to keep going. That's what I picked up about that. So in a story like this, that's the thing that's happening. And that's why I actually went through all those little things about the names and all about the history and all about the politics and the different nations, et cetera, is because, and obviously when you go back thousands of years, it's even stranger, which makes the effect even more powerful is you find yourself in those particulars. It's embodied history, and that's what does something to your heart. And so you can get better at this, at finding yourself in a story. Now, the reason why I say all this is there is this disease of our day. It's like an outbreak in our culture. People call it uh, this increasing polarization. There's these people over on this side, and there's this people over on this side, and you find more and more people talking about this. How many of you have picked this up recently? It's like in the air. We're more divided than ever. Our nation, our world, we have the extreme right, and then we have the extreme left. People talk about it in all sorts of different ways. But here's the connection with Ruth and you and me. In some ways, we're living in an era when many people have no skills in seeing themselves in others. It's almost like the real disease is a lack of muscle. It's like a lack of musculature that knows how to find themselves in another story. And so they just remain them. But the real invitation is for you and me to find ourselves in them. Are you with me on this? That's like the great invitation of our day, is when you're interacting with that person on the other side, 
that person who voted for Trump, that person who doesn't see the world the way that you do, that the great invitation is not to keep them as a them, but to keep asking and to stay curious and to keep looking because you're looking for yourself. It's like if you go far enough into them, you'll probably find yourself. They're probably scared. They probably have broken hearts, just like all the rest of us. Are you with me on this? It's almost like the great invitation of our day is to move from me over here and you over there to us, to me finding myself in you. So the thing about an ancient text like this, when you and I gather around it and I read it to you and you hear yourself in it, is it's like you're learning, oh, there I am, oh, there I am, oh, there I am. And the real invitation then is to move it from thousands of years ago to today. There I am, there I am, there I am. Now, a bit about particulars and universals. The loopbacks and the callbacks, friends, have already started. Here's what I mean. The internet... The interweb, kids. Screens, handles, quotes. This person tweeted this. This person posted that. A good chunk of the time on the internet, you're interacting with a comment. You're interacting with a thing this person said. You're interacting with a barbed, snarky thing the person said in the comment section. But you haven't met that person. You haven't seen where they live. It's screens and handles and quotes and comments, but they're severed from the particulars. These two people on Twitter are going back and forth, just flinging mud at each other. But neither of them know one thing about the actual flesh and blood life of the other person. No wonder it's making people crazy. It's divorced from the flesh and blood particulars of life. And it's the particulars where we find ourselves in each other. In many cases, all you have is the comment, isolated from this person's love and their loss and their fear and their hopes, and your past, and your regrets, all you have are these isolated bits and pieces. No wonder it's making people mental. A friend of mine this week was talking about uh, the things that he puts on the interweb, and how sometimes people will say horribly nasty things, and sometimes they'll just type back, hey, just a reminder, I'm a human, and he said, you wouldn't believe how many people. Uh, it immediately changes the tenor of things. So he just said, hey, just a reminder, you know, I'm a human. How many people would be like, hey, hey, no problem, sorry, I didn't mean to. And then it just completely changes the tenor. Literally, these machines sever at some level, can sever us from the particulars of our humanity. No wonder it leaves people wondering if we're flying off a cliff. And sometimes what happens when you're severed from the particulars is this person's comment becomes the sum total of their being. They said that. They 
tweeted that. And the invitation for all of us is to rediscover our humanity. So these tools can be wonderful, but these machines can also take over. And obviously the machines, as we've talked about endlessly, you've heard me talk about how the algorithms are bent towards the absurd, the ridiculous, the mean, the nasty. Facebook only knows heat. It has absolutely no radar for good, kind, peaceful. It only knows heat. It only knows conflict. It only knows activity. And so the ruder, the less humane, uh, the more provoking, the more degrading, that's where the machines all had billions of dollars spent to move things in that direction. So that's the power of an ancient text is it's like you're learning how to find yourself in that story so you can find yourself in this person's story so you can find yourself in that person's story so that you're more and more connected with your own humanity. You're more and more connected with their humanity. And when you see them do what you do... By the way, one more thought here. Um, you know what? I actually have like 50 more thoughts, but let me do one more here. When you read these stories and you're connecting with their humanity, which if you go far enough into them, you find yourself. You go far enough into yourself, you find them. What you're doing is you're connecting yourself with your own story. And when you read the Ruth story, and Ruth is there on the road, and she doesn't seem, maybe she's torn, then she's not. Orpah's torn for like two minutes, and then she's like, well, I'm out of here. Have safe travels, bitter. Um, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, Orpah and Ruth are in the same situation and they choose completely different paths. But here's the thing, here's the thing what you did. Because if you're like me when you read the Ruth story, were you instantly judgmental of the two of them? Or did you just go, yeah, I get that. I get why Orpah's like, why would I go to a place that may not have food or may have just gotten food? Why wouldn't I just go back to my my home and my family? Naomi's right. And Ruth is like, I don't know, there's something calling me here. What's interesting, if you're like me, and I'm assuming, yeah, look at that, look what we just did there. I'm assuming you're like me in that story. You didn't have any judgment. You just went, oh, it's a story, interesting. The one chose this, the one chose that. Do you see what's going on there? All those times... When you chose this and not that, you went that direction, you let them off the hook because you're like, oh, that's just what they did. That's one of the ways into letting yourself off the hook. I'm telling you, uh, the number of people I've gotten to interact with who, and these Q&As that I've been doing on tour before the main show, the number of people who will tell some story um, about something they did, some, some way they responded, some action they took, and they describe it with an element of shame, regret, mistake, humiliation. And oftentimes, literally, I'll stop them mid-question and just go, hold on, hold on, hold on. What happened again? You lost your job and you were angry? Yeah, I was. Okay. That, that actually sounds kind of normal to me. I'm telling you, this is one of my jobs, and I love it. I love it when people tell me things, and they've attached a story to it. Let me get it straight. Your husband, it turns out he had a lover 
for years, and then he eventually decided to leave you and go marry her, and uh, you found yourself a bit disrupted for a number of years there. Yeah. Sounds like that's what would happen. I'm telling you, I get to say these sorts of things to people. That sounds like a perfectly normal reaction to what happened to you. And I'm telling you, watching people go, sometimes I'll even say, tell you what, just take a deep breath. Yeah. I get why you did that. I get that. Or people will say, I can't believe I was ever part of that thing. Those people are crazy. They believe the dumbest stuff. I can't believe I ever bought any of that. Hold on, hold on. How old were you? 13. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they also fed you and clothed you and loved you. So it kind of makes sense that the people who fed you and clothed you and loved you, you would be a part of the thing they were a part of. Yeah, that actually kind of makes sense. And the... <sighs> Deep breath, exhale. Yeah. Yeah. We're reacting. We're torn. We're heartbroken. We're devastated. There are forces beyond our control. Famine, downturn in the market. That job dried up. That town held nothing more for us. We're risking. We're bitter. We're questioning the very goodness of the universe. Sometimes it's hard to let other people off the hook because we haven't let ourselves off the hook. We're still beating ourselves up over all the decisions we made and sort of stumbling along. And the power of an ancient story is you read it and you just go, oh, that's what they did, okay. And something within it, once again, it's like you're building up the musculature. You're building the muscles to go, yeah, that's what I did. That's what I did. And that's my history, and it's okay. So sacred history. You read sacred history in order to reread your own sacred history. You were reacting, you were responding. Sometimes we're just numbing. You did what you did there because you were numbing the pain. I get it, I get it. Of course, of course sometimes we numb the pain. Yes, very normal. Or how about this one, revenge. You said that because you wanted to get revenge. You said that was because they hurt you and you wanted to watch, you, you wanted them to pay. Of course. Now, we're learning to forgive. We're learning not to keep the violence in circulation. But the fact that you said that and did that and actually you're, rooted by, you're motivated by revenge, I know that feeling. Of course, very normal. Or how about that time when you moved too quickly? Anybody have one of the, I got a long list of those. Man, I moved so quickly and then later was like, I probably should have paused a beat. Or the other times when you stayed put too long and you should have moved sooner, I got a long list of those as well. <laughs> Yes, yes, let's just set you free from that. Yes, it was all part of it. It was all part of it. Yeah, so take that anxiety, take that regret, take that thing that you're carrying around, that thing that you keep beating yourself up over, that thing that you share with somebody, and it's got all that shame and humiliation attached to it. Here's what I want to say to that. Here's what I want to say to that. Of course. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, you did that. Of course you did that. Yeah. And now we get to move on and we get to learn. And then next time there's a chance we might not respond that way because we're growing and we're students. Uh, Kristen and I did this event a number of years ago. And at the end of the event, we were just like wrapping up the whole thing. And Kristen was uh, sitting there on stage with me and somebody asked her a question and it was like that beautiful moment at the very end of a couple of days together with this group of people, and somebody asked a question or something, and I was about to launch into one of my long things, you know what I mean? One of my 
jazz improv things where I just, not actual jazz improv, but where I just sort of riff and go here. And Kristen just sort of stops me and she just says, you know what? It's like we're all just walking each other home. Oh, come on. Is that not, oh, yeah. She shoots, she scores. It's like we're all just walking each other home. I'm telling you, that moment, I don't know how, it was uh, four years ago, it's still like, you know, it's still like knocking around in my heart. Yeah, it's all part of who you are. It's how you got here. That's this story. Ruth, oh my word, where are you headed, Ruth? Why do you want to go back to Bethlehem, which you've never been in? Why? Why doesn't the storyteller tell us? I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. Uh, parentheses, a cliffhanger, the end of chapter one, but it's all part of it. It's all part of it. So that's what we're doing. We're learning to find ourselves in this story. We're learning to find ourselves in each other. Uh, we're learning the curiosity of those who are nothing like us. What if right now in the world, or let's take the United States of America, starts with an M. What if every person decided to try and find themselves in the person that right now is most incomprehensible to them. I'm just going to keep asking questions till that person who drives me crazy because I can't understand why they think the way they do, vote the way they do, why they watch that news channel, why they uh, oppose that, why they're for that. I am not going to give up till I see a bit of myself in them somewhere. Yeah, obviously. That would change the whole game. Yeah. 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 You and me and Ruth. So, my friends, we come to the end of this episode, 243. Uh, may you come to see that it's all part of it. May you let yourself off the hook for all those reactions and responses and stumblings and wanderings and risks and things you did when everybody said, what are you doing that for? Yeah, may you let yourself the, uh, off the hook so that you get better. And in the process, finding you're getting better at letting others off the hook. May you find yourself in that story because you're finding yourself in all these stories. May you go far enough into them that you find yourself. May you go far enough into yourself that you find them. And may you, well, I'll say today, tomorrow, the next day, when you encounter that person who just makes you scratch your head with madness, what are they thinking? May you have this mantra right there at the front of your heart. Where am I in this person? Show me myself and watch how that changes the whole thing. And may grace and peace be with you.